Okay, I'm gonna bring this to a boil. some ammonia and then some of my iron tablets and uh, now imagine if after I heat this kind of oddball soup a fish appeared and popped out I mean that would be extraordinary and belie belief but how less remarkable is it that biology appeared from the early earth's chemical stew 3.6 billion years ago I mean that atoms organized into simple then complex molecules and eventually non-living matter became living matter. I mean, we're acquainted with the end result. I mean, that's you. But when we wind the clock back, we hit the limits of our understanding about the first life. How did it arise? And how did its chemical building blocks take shape anyhow? Well, to find out, scientists are running chemical experiments in their own kitchens in conditions a tad more controlled than I'm able to achieve here. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. And in this episode, we examine the origin of life with the help of an astrobiologist who not only gives us the big picture of latest research, but tells us whether we're getting closer to the correct recipe and whether reproducing Earth's early chemistry in the lab helps us answer the question, is life inevitable? It's hard to overestimate the extraordinary story of the origin of life at the time when Earth cooked up some biology and somehow produced life from non-life. We're going to examine current theories about how life got started with help from an astrobiologist who can put the research in context. Hi, I'm Caleb Scharf, and I'm director of astrobiology at Columbia University in New York. Hey, Caleb, first let's set the scene. Uh, Life began at least three and a half billion years ago, when Earth was a little bit different than it is now. Can you describe for us what the early Earth would have been like if we could go back three and a half billion years? Yeah, so a lot of things were radically different from the Earth that we're familiar with. Um, That earliest, earliest period of the Earth, not long after it formed, we called the Hadean. And that should give you a clue. We're talking Hades, we're talking a hellish landscape. So we expect that early Earth had a radically different atmosphere than today. So no oxygen, a lot of species like molecular hydrogen or methane, highly reducing chemical species, which would mean that the surface chemistry as well would be very, very different than we experience today. If I went back there and I stood on a a high rock, I mean, with asbestos shoes or something, what would I see? Would it be a glowing red mass of hot rock, too? I mean, was it like lava everywhere? (laughs) Probably at some point. But I guess the period that is of most interest for questions about the origins of life, questions for astrobiologists, is, is a period where the Earth had kind of settled a little bit. And there's certainly evidence of water being around then. Now, whether that water was really pooling on the surface of the planet in quantity, we're not sure. But from various mineralogical, chemical evidence, we we suspect there was a lot of water around. So it's possible when you stood on your rock, you might look out across a kind of shallow ocean, 
how much rock there would be to stand on is also an open question. We don't really know when the first continental land masses formed on Earth. Well, somehow, Caleb, in this this fiery, disruptive place, biology came forth. And we're going to look at two hypotheses that describe the steps before life, the creation of these precursor molecules. So if you could put into context for us, um, well, first, what are the building blocks of life? Do we know what they are? And, and how is the attempt by some experimenters to create them at the heart of origin of life research? Yeah, so that's a big question to <laughs> unpack and answer. So Yeah, if you could thing. summarize, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah summarize the, the whole origin of everything. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> One sentence. So here's the thing. So we think we understand the building blocks of life as it is today. So we're talking about things like amino acids, nuclear bases, other pretty rudimentary organic molecules. And part of our quest to understand how life came to exist is understanding whether that particular set of building blocks could have been produced, for example, on a very young planet, and then could have gotten themselves into the situation where they start to build more and more complex structures. Now, there's a big caveat there in as much as these are the building blocks of life today. But of course, life today has been evolved over billions of years. So, you know, it's a little tricky, but we think that many of the, the building blocks, things like basic amino acids, were almost certainly present on a young Earth. We actually find these molecules out in space. We find them in other bodies on our solar system. So that's a real focus. Going back to the basics, how do these relatively simple molecules wind up in situations where they can build more and more complex um, structures? So we're going to take a look at two of the major theories about how life got started. One is Darwin's warm little ponds, and the other is in the, in the waters of ocean hydrothermal vents down at the bottom of, bottom of the seas. The first is a new experiment to recreate vents in the early ocean bottom. My name is Lori Barge, and I am an astrobiologist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. I'm interested in looking at how minerals affect the origin of life on planets and how they affect how life lives on planets. So the hydrothermal vent theory is attractive because hydrothermal vents are chemical incubators. They're hot, they're full of rich chemistry, they can concentrate substances together in a way that you can't do out in the open ocean. And they seem to be places where there's an enormous amount of chemical energy, energy that could be exploited by life. This is a simulation of the ocean floor where vents occur. We have a, a vessel here that contains some simulated ocean water, and in this case we're just simulating the important part, which is no oxygen and iron. And we're going to inject into that with a syringe, and that mimics the slow seepage of hydrothermal fluid from the seafloor into the real ocean. And then you're going to see the growth of a small precipitate forming, and that's the chimney. And these chimneys are only two centimeters tall or so, but they mimic what you see at a real vent, and these real chimneys can be very large. According to you and your lab, what are the ingredients necessary for the building blocks of life? Okay, so the ingredients for this reaction anyway would be iron hydroxide mineral, and it's simply iron in solution precipitating with hydroxide in solution, and you get an iron hydroxide, water, some heat, ammonia, and the organic precursor, which is pyruvate. Pyruvate. What is pyruvate? So pyruvate is a carboxylic acid. It's basically just a small organic molecule that you can form abiotically, but it's also important for life. And pyruvate's also really important for metabolism in life today, and probably was at the beginning too. 
So, Caleb, does anything strike you about her approach making many hydrothermal vents in the lab and her list of ingredients? I think it's really interesting because accessing hydrothermal vents on Earth today is really difficult. It's hard to go down to the bottom of the ocean and, and do these kinds of experiments. So it makes a lot of sense that you'd want to try to recreate the conditions in the lab where you can also tune the conditions to what we think Earth's early chemistry was. And, you know, the list of ingredients she talks about all make a lot of sense. It's about uh, energy sources, chemical energy, and it's about the the little organic pieces that are going to somehow have to get joined together to make more complex structures. What are you trying to form in this experiment? Is it amino acids? Amino acids is one thing that forms. There's another product as well that's called an alpha-hydroxy acid. And also we make the mineral itself. So in this experiment you'll see we're going to have a simulated ocean fluid that has the iron and then a simulated hydrothermal fluid that has the hydroxide. And when they're mixed together you get the iron hydroxide. How can we possibly imagine what the early Earth was like four billion years ago? Well, um, knowing what the early Earth was like is very challenging because there's very few rocks left from that time period, and it's really hard to know exactly how a planet evolves over time. I think one of the most important things is the fact that there was not atmospheric oxygen, and that means the ocean would have not had oxygen either. Today's ocean has oxygen in it because the atmosphere now has 20% oxygen. Because there's oxygen, if iron comes in the ocean, it precipitates out right away as iron minerals, whereas previously on the early Earth, that would have been dissolved in the solution. And so that means really that you would have had dissolved iron in the ocean. And that gives you all sorts of chemical reactions that don't occur otherwise. So that's one of the main things that we simulate in the lab is putting iron in the ocean, keeping the oxygen out, and then looking at the minerals that form and the reactions that those can drive. To be clear, are you trying to create life here in the lab? No, because A, we don't really know how to define life, but also that would be a lot of work. And these reactions have to be done very scientifically one at a time. Otherwise, you don't know exactly what caused your reaction in the first place. So the demonstration is underway. You are wearing a lab coat. I don't need to wear a lab coat? Nope. If you're not touching chemicals, you don't have to wear a lab coat. Okay, got it. I will not touch any chemicals. There's two types of experiments that we did for this study. One was simulating a hydrothermal vent chimney. And these are these structures that grow when one fluid injects into the other. So they're kind of these tall chemical garden type structures. And we make those in the lab by having an ocean, a pretend ocean. And then we have a syringe that is the hydrothermal fluid injecting in, kind of like it does in a real vent. And so we slowly inject that fluid and then the chimney will grow. So that's one. And then the second one is sediment. So this is the minerals and materials that coat the seafloor that just precipitate out in layers. So for those, you simply mix together an ocean fluid and a hydrothermal fluid and it makes kind of a mud that settles out on the bottom. And where in all of that would these critical chemicals and the amino acids form? Along the chimney wall, on the ocean bottom, in that mud? The reactions are actually happening in the minerals. And so even though the organics in our experiment, the precursor is put in there like a in the solution, it's actually the mineral that is driving the reaction. So we think that inside that mud and those pores is where the reaction is occurring. And for the chimney, it would be occurring in the chimney itself, so in the walls. All right, here we go. You're, you're going to okay. inject the hydrothermal fluid. Inject. So you see a little precipitate formed? Oh, goodness. Okay, so what it looks like is smoke. It sort of looks like dark smoke yeah, at so the very bottom of this beaker. It's growing. It Right now, it looks kind of green, a kind of greenish brown. And that's iron hydroxide minerals. Because in the ocean is iron, and in the syringe is hydroxide. And when you mix them, you get iron hydroxide. It's beautiful. And in the early Earth, this hydrothermal fluid would have come from deep in the Earth? 
It would have come from in the Earth's crust where seawater actually goes into the crust and reacts with that rock, and then it becomes a different fluid, and then it comes back up into the ocean. Okay, so now you've got a nice tall chimney and a little short one next to it. And you see there's orange parts forming on the little one. Oh, yes. So you have two colors. And the two colors are dark, dark green. It looks almost black and then orange. So the orange is iron oxide, or it's oxidized iron hydroxide, like red rust. And then the, the darker one is reduced iron hydroxide. You can just see how there's a mixture in there. And that's the important part. We'll post a photo of this chimney on our website so you can huh. see over the many decades that we've been studying the origins of life, why is iron now considered to be something that's important? Well, now that we know that the early Earth's ocean contained a lot of iron, and that's been known for some time, I think it has not always been known how much the presence of iron would have affected prebiotic chemistry. And so we find, for our reaction anyway, that is the most important variable, was how much reduced iron is there in the environment. And when you change that, you change which products are formed. And how does that change advance or change the narrative of how life might have gotten started? Well, I think one thing that it adds is understanding the importance of gradients. So it's not just one condition in a closed system. It has to be a range of different conditions kind of spanning the, the range that you could get for these variables like pH or temperature or redox state. You may have, for example, a reaction occurring at one place in the sediment, and then it diffuses to another place in the sediment, but those gradients have shifted slightly now, and so then it can react in a different way and so on. So by having a system that has gradients and is not just a closed bottle, you can get a lot more interesting things happening. Now, we don't have amino acids yet. No. And actually, I believe in this demo, we did not add the organic precursor because you're not going to be able to see that happening without doing analysis that will take weeks. So there's another. I'm patient. <laughs> Why are amino acids so great? Why do they make good building blocks of life? Well, they link together and give you peptides, which then give you proteins, and they are used in life in a variety of ways. It's not the only important molecule. There's nucleotides and so on. But amino acids are one where we think you can form them just from precursors. So if you have geological ammonia and geological carbon, you can link that to make an amino acid geologically, but then it can be used for life or for the origin of life. Now, there's nothing in this experiment that suggests with time it would turn into a protocell membrane or RNA or DNA. Well, it would just depend how long you want to wait. So if you kept injecting this, you need to keep the gradients alive. So when I put down the syringe, the gradients are done. But if I had a huge aquarium and a big syringe and you injected it for years, you could do a whole lot of things in here. And it's not going to be a full cell necessarily, but you could, you could try to make RNA, you could try to make, say, lipids, things like that. And the ocean is a huge aquarium. It is. Yeah. It's pretty hard to simulate, but <laughs> you got a lot of room in there. Well, Lori Barge, thank you so much for bringing us into your lab and showing us how life might have gotten started four million years ago. You're welcome. Lori Barge is an astrobiologist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. So, Caleb, she's trying to simulate a possible origin of life, and she's talking about chemistry, and she's also talking about the importance of having chemistry that's, if you will, in transition, on the edge. I suppose that's the... The, the reason for having a chimney there, that things are different at the bottom of the chimney than at the top. The overarching thing to, to see in this is she is pursuing a plausible scenario for what happened on Earth three and a half, four billion years ago. And it's complex. It's extraordinarily complex. There are so many parameters, so many factors involved. And the beautiful thing about her experiments are that they capture as 
Laurie was talking about this this landscape, this landscape of there's something different happening at the bottom of the vent than at the top of the chimney. There are gradients across the chimney and so on. We think, as you said, it's you know stuff happens on the edge. It happens where there's the potential for change, where there's there's a there's a push towards different chemical equilibria. Is it interesting to you the emphasis that she's putting on iron hydroxide in this particular experiment? Yeah, it does seem that presence of iron has been underappreciated as a, a potential catalyst for a whole variety of uh, chemistry, a whole variety of uh, physical mineral structures that must have happened on an early Earth, could have happened in other places like Mars. So it's very interesting. There's a shift from just trying to shake ingredients up in a test tube to thinking about the detailed geochemistry and geophysics of a planetary environment as key to making life. And, and so the idea is that if you had a lot of these vents uh, four billion years ago or whenever at the bottom of the oceans of the early Earth, that some of them would eventually, via these kinds of processes, just produced a molecule, maybe it was RNA, maybe whatever it was, that was able to make copies of itself fairly accurately. I mean, that's that's where all this is going, right? Yeah, that's kind of the holy grail, is to get to the point where you have a system that undergoes Darwinian selection, right? So all of these experiments, yeah, you know, I think people would love it if a living system emerged out of one of these experiments, but we don't know how long it would take even with all the right ingredients, the right circumstances for a living system to emerge. Maybe it happens in hours. Maybe it happens in 10 million years. So, you know, that's a big open question. Not everyone thinks an ocean vent system is the most promising site for life's origins. Proponents of the freshwater pool theory say their new take on an old idea gets Darwin's approval. Astrobiologist Caleb Scharf stays with us to put this next idea in context, as well as the provocative one that physics, not simply organic chemistry, drove the formation of those first reproducing molecules. We're asking, is life inevitable on Big Picture Science? talking about the origin of life on this episode of Big Picture Science. If you've been to Yellowstone Park, you're familiar with its steaming landscape where geothermal energy heats the waters and occasionally produces dramatic geysers. Such hydrothermal landscapes, which are also found or once existed in places such as Western Australia and New Zealand, are at the center of another story where a group of scientists believe they found evidence for the origin of life. Those researchers traipsed through these landscapes collecting chemicals, which they successfully induced to create life's building blocks. And they think that pools of warm, fresh water that reliably evaporate, fill again, and evaporate create an ideal environment for the emergence of life. And simulating these processes in a computer allows them to extrapolate many generations into the future to see what happens. Our new model for the origin of life goes back to Darwin's warm little pond, only we're updating it as a hot little cycling pool. I'm Dr. Bruce Damer. I'm an astrobiologist with the University of California, Santa Cruz, Department of Biomolecular Engineering, and the founder of the Biota Institute. 
So Dr. Deamer describes his work with colleagues Dave Deamer and Tara Jokic, both in the field and with computer simulations, and that support their hypothesis that warm little ponds on land, not, not hydrothermal vents in the ocean, are the most plausible site for the origin of life. The general idea Darwin had was you needed a little pond to get the molecules concentrated enough, together enough to form bonds and form reactions. If it was warm, they would form them faster. And then he posited that there were sources of energy. And then his last part of his sentence is fascinating. He said, and that what would form would be a protein compound that becomes more complex. It's the complexity that you're, that interests you. How do you create these complex molecules, right? And, and how are you updating Darwin's idea? So what we updated Darwin's idea is what we call sort of the bathtub or jacuzzi little pond, which is that in order to get things to become more complex, you have to cycle them. So what we realized was if you let his little warm pond dry down and refill and dry down and refill, it actually creates a little engine of creation in a way. Because as you dry down, you concentrate things around the bottom, just as you would form a, a bathtub ring in a bathtub. If you have a soapy bathtub, dry it down and refill it, you form a ring around the bathtub. And it's in that ring that the chemistry can occur for life's beginnings. And what that means is that as the reaction progresses, water leaves. We have to dry the solutions down for the water to leave, and then these monomers should click together and form these biopolymers. So while we hear that water is necessary for life, and in fact that's NASA's mantra, where there's water there may be life, or follow the water, in this case you're saying you both need water and the absence of water occasionally so that you could get those complex molecules to form. And this has been called the water problem of the origin of life for the last 30 years. The irony is life needs water to operate, but pre-biology or the formation of the building blocks of life can't form in a aqueous environment. It has to undergo some kind of wet-dry cycling. One of the competing theories for how life started is that it started in a hydrothermal vent. And we just heard from Lori Barge at uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory about the experiment that she's doing. What are the crucial differences between your hypotheses? One's in the ocean, one's on land in freshwater. Is there more to it? The fundamental difference is that in the scenario for the vents at the bottom of the ocean, the water's always there. So if a product forms, not only is it broken down by a process called hydrolysis, because as we were all taught when we were little, water is the universal solvent. It breaks everything down. But also, things dissipate. So even if a bond should form, there's no way to form future bonds because the material just dissipates into the ocean. It may, however, and this is one of the things that Laurie's group is looking into, uh, find its way into pores in the rock. And for a period of time, maybe it does concentrate. But as we are showing in our warm little ponds on land scenario, the pond can not only concentrate the monomers to form very lengthy polymers, but it can also encapsulate them in membranous little things we call protocells, all from meteoritic or uh, material delivered from the sky, from meteorite infall and dust infall. So in a hydrothermal landscape associated with volcanism, you'd have thousands to millions of these pools, all cycling at different rates, all with different pHs, different chemical compositions, different sizes. And so you can get all kinds of chemistry going and mixing. 
And then when a form of proto-life arises, it can spread across these pools and across this landscape. So if one pool sort of dies out, the tools and the evolutionary process of that proto-life can carry on across the landscape. Very so, much so like it's just the sheer abundance of opportunity. The sheer abundance of opportunity, well said. Whereas deep in the oceans, at the hydrothermal vent environment, if a form of proto-life should arise, the only place for it to go is into the dilute cold of the ocean, where there's very little chemicals to eat or concentration, where it can't get access to sunlight. So it would just simply uh, be extinguished. Well, let's break down what some of these building blocks are. You mentioned monomers, and monomers are small chains of molecules, whereas polymers are lengthy chains of molecules. Mm-hmm. Is that right? That's right. And, w- and what are some examples of polymers that people would recognize? These are the building blocks of life. Yeah, and everyone knows the names, uh, RNA, DNA, and proteins. Have you been able to form them? Yeah, we've been forming RNA in the, both the laboratory and recently in Rotorua in New Zealand in hot spring settings directly with hot spring water. And other teams are doing peptides, which are short forms of proteins. So there's groups all over the world now that have replicated these results through this wet-dry cycling. And you go to some extreme environments. Can you describe some of the places you've been in New Zealand and Australia? Yeah, Dave and I have been doing work at Bumpus Hell in Mount Lassen Park, just three hours north of here in California, where fumarole gases come out at 100 degrees Celsius. And Dave's been to volcanoes in Kamchatka. I've done work out at Yellowstone National Park, very productive work there, and then recently in Rotorua in New Zealand. So think of it as the first form of capturing sunlight and putting it to work, drying that pool down such that the molecules can get together, form the protocells, and then when that flush of water comes from that geyser that's so regular, just like Old Faithful, you get the wetting cycle, so you get your engine, so it's still capturing sunlight. One of the key ingredients that you outline that we absolutely have to follow up on is the contribution of material from space. The solar system, even today, is replete with water and organic compounds. So, for example, uh, what Dave did in the 1980s is he took a piece of the Murchison meteorite, which is a, a famous meteorite that fell near the town of Murchison, Australia, and he ground up a piece of it into a powder and put it into a solution, and he looked into his microscope and saw membranes forming and realized that the membranes we need to encapsulate our polymers were coming in from space because the Murchison is about the age of the Earth. So it's the kind of thing that was falling on the Earth in great abundance. You're creating a a scene for us of the early Earth, Mm. but we can go farther than that, I understand. You actually have the smells of the early Earth with you. Is that right? Yes, uh, Molly. I have I have in my hand a little vial, which is sort of an extract from the Murray meteorite, which is considered to be older than Earth. It's 4.6 billion years old, and we put it in chloroform. And if I open it up and I take a sniff, I can smell a beautiful smoky smell. And that's the smell of the organics that were in the solar system or still in the solar system for the whole history of our solar system. Take a whiff. <laughs> okay, this isn't going to knock me out, is it? Oh, it's, um, yeah, it does have a smoky smell. It's kind of damp, sort of like mm-hmm. running shoes, mm. a, a little bit of running shoe. 
<laughs> I feel like I'm I'm wine tasting here. Uh, the so old the oldest vintage you'll ever experience. So this is if we were able to traipse around the early Earth 3.5 billion years ago. Is this what it would have smelled like? Say, for instance, at about four billion years ago, or just slightly older, where when we think that life was getting its start, you would have seen a sort of an orange-pink sky and a volcanic landscapes, a huge global ocean, and a lot of flashes in the sky and a lot of dust coming down. And so you would have found these little pools in places where this material had accumulated. And if you scooped it up, you'd find all these organics that were in those pools. And this is what they would have smelled like. Yeah, uh, this is what they would have smelled like because this is actually one of those pieces of those materials. Okay, so a couple things are happening here. You have this cycling of, of wet and dry, providing these stressors so that these molecules can concentrate and form long molecules. But then you need a cell or you need a protocell. Mm-hmm. And you're suggesting that these other organics created a kind of a lipid, a fat or something, and the longer chain molecules were embedded in these protocells? Yeah, so we observed this both in the lab and now out in hot spring settings, that with a single drop of mostly acid solution into a little dish that contains these what are called fatty acid lipid membranes, and you can see them, they're, they're like a bathtub ring at the bottom of our little dishes. As soon as I put that drop of hot spring water in, it buds off trillions of little compartments called vesicles. And the vesicles float around in in the water for a while and then dry down and then fuse together again into a layer. So they could be between layered and little balloons and then layered and little balloons. And in that process of the drying down and the, the layering, that's when our polymers are stitched together. So then in future droplets that I put in, I'm creating little vesicles that contain the polymers. They've trapped the polymers. We call those protocells, and we think that that's the unit of selection that can lead us toward a living system. So to be clear, you were able to explain, and you've, and you've shown through experimentation, how precursor molecules formed and also how protocells formed. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not life itself, though, right? But it's the building blocks. It's, it's a, a really good starting place because when we're forming protocells, it's like a roulette wheel that's turning. And those balls are bouncing around, and they're, they're hitting the different parts of the roulette wheel. What if one protocell, by accident, has a polymer in it that does a, a job that makes the protocell more stable? That little ball falls into the good part of the roulette wheel, and it's selected. And then the next round, there's more of those optimal protocells, and more and more, and we get amplification. And our colleagues have shown this in sort of bare-naked polymer evolution. It's called molecular evolution. And we're suggesting that we can actually see the functions of life booting up within such a cycling system. And the advantage that the early Earth has over your experiment is time. So it could run the experiment over and over again for, what, 100 million years or so, Mm -hmm. whereas maybe you're limited to 30 or 40. We're limited to uh, the dwell time of graduate students in the lab. Bruce Deamer, thank you so much for coming into our studio to talk to us about the origins of life. You're most welcome, Molly. Bruce Damer is an astrobiologist with the University of California, Santa Cruz, and the founder of the Biota Institute. Columbia University astrobiologist Caleb Scharf is helping us to put origin of life research into perspective. 
Caleb, you've heard what uh, Bruce Damer has said here, and what challenge would you put to his hypothesis that uh, sort of puts everything on its head, that, that actually life may have begun on the land and then colonized the ocean rather than the other way around? It's a good question. I mean, it sounds so compelling, and, and this is one of the challenges in this field is that scientists working in, in different areas can come up with extremely compelling stories, narratives for why a particular mechanism is kind of the best one. And I, and I think it may be the case that they all played a role. I, I don't see why it should be one particular mechanism. You know, a key point that he, he got to was this idea of this landscape of little ponds and each one doing its own thing. And it's like an enormous search engine, right? It's like proto-Google, but it's doing chemistry. And I, I think perhaps part of the answer is that there was a lot of this happening on the early Earth. It could have been in hydrothermal systems, could have been in little ponds. Well, when you describe it that way, Caleb, I wonder then, and having listened to these two experiments about uh, the mixing of these chemicals, if you have this amount of time that the early Earth had, is the emergence of life inevitable? (laughs) I wish I knew the answer to that. (laughs) It's super difficult to know. Uh, you know. We don't have a handle on the actual time scales. I mean, we have evidence that life got going comparatively quickly on Earth within maybe a few hundred million years of its sort of final epoch of formation. And so in geophysical terms, that's quick. Uh, human terms, that's really slow. Um, so yeah, this question of the absolute probability of life happening in a place, even when you've got all the right pieces, that's wide open. I, I would hesitate to even hazard a guess <laughs> to what the answer is. Our next guest says forget about hydrothermal vents and evaporating pools. Life came about as the result of basic physics. It was not a lucky accident. It was inevitable. So close your chemistry book and open your physics textbook to where it talks about the second law of thermodynamics and entropy. Have origin of life researchers been missing the boat? That's next. It's Is Life Inevitable on Big Picture Science. talking about the origin of life on this episode of Big Picture Science, what if it doesn't come down to just chemistry? What if the driving force of life's emergence is simple physics? My name is Jeremy England, and I'm a physicist, and I have a lab that studies the physics of self-organization in the physics department at MIT. Dr. England's idea is that the laws of physics can explain the rise of ordered systems. For example, how biology emerges from the disorder of the early Earth. There's a word for the measurement of disorder, and it's entropy. Ordered systems are less likely than disordered systems. I mean, look at your kid's room. It has higher entropy. And here's another example. Imagine taking a a deck of cards, throw them up into the air, they land on the floor. There's some chance they'll fall in suit order from aces to kings, but I wouldn't take that bet to Las Vegas because there are 100 million, trillion, 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 trillion other ways that the cards might land. 
Dr. England says that physical processes may up the odds that the deck will end up in order, as it were. He applies this idea to the origin of life. Dr. England thinks that life's origin was inevitable because atoms, the building blocks of everything, will eventually arrange themselves to most efficiently dissipate energy. And some of those arrangements might be the type of complex molecules that can accurately reproduce life. So as Dr. England likes to say, you start with a random clump of atoms, and if you shine a light on it for long enough, it should not be so surprising that you get a plant. Well, it's no surprise either that his idea has made waves and entered the popular consciousness. In the Dan Brown thriller Origin, a brilliant scientist with a theory of entropy is named Jeremy England. I wasn't uh, aware that the book was being written when it was being written and only found out shortly before it came out, and so I didn't have any role in its creation. And he took issue with Dan Brown's characterization of the intent behind the fictional Jeremy England's research, that is to prove that science can make religion obsolete. The real Jeremy England responded with an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. I think the main thing that I, I reacted to is that the idea of you know entropy just trying to increase itself, that idea was taken in the plot of the book as a sort of definitive argument that there is no God and that all religions have been falsified by science, you know, and I happen to be a Jew who is observant and the character that was written was very, you know, openly unwilling to comment or or discuss, you know, when it came to these kind of bigger picture questions. And that's just not me. I'm very eager to comment and discuss. I, I wasn't happy to be portrayed as, you know, leaving that to philosophers. It's not just fiction writers that have been drawn to Dr. England's theory on the origin of life. Scientists, too, calling it provocative, doubtful, or a significant breakthrough. We have been discussing origin of life hypotheses with astrobiologist Caleb Scharf. Caleb, had you heard of Dr. England's theory? Yeah, absolutely. I'd I'd certainly heard of it as an original, novel way to, to try to understand what it is that makes the universe do this? (laughs) Why does the universe build stuff like us? Jeremy, you have a new take on one of the most intriguing questions in science. How did life arise? So uh, the usual way of thinking about the beginnings of life has relied on, you know, uh, atoms in the primeval oceans of the earth or wherever, uh, just sort of bumping into one another and making structures, most of which don't do anything very interesting. But occasionally and by chance, uh, you'll get some structure that is able to make, well, copies of itself. So there you go, reproduction, and and that's how life got started. But uh, your idea sort of suggests, well, there's another way to do this, and it depends on entropy. In particular, the second law of thermodynamics states that entropy always increases in a closed system. Maybe you could give an example of of how that works. Entropy is a very tricky concept because of how it's often handed around in popular consciousness because we often talk about entropy as though it's a measure of how disordered or or, or screwed up or, or dysfunctional or messy something is. But if we're more technical about what it is, it's really about just counting different ways that things could happen. And so really our interest in entropy is always at base about probability. Like when you're rolling two dice and you're adding the numbers together, 
there's more ways of getting, let's say, the number four uh, than there is of getting the number two because, you know, with, with two, you have to get just two ones, and there's only one way of doing that. But obviously, there are more ways of, of adding to getting. You have one plus three to make four or two plus two to make four. So entropy is really just the bringing of that idea into thinking about number of ways that pieces of matter can behave. And the way it enters into our research is that we're trying to think about the flow of energy and how the flow of energy influences how matter gets restructured over time. So what you're saying is that there's something about the tendency toward increasing entropy that can foment biological behavior? I wouldn't quite put it that way. I think that we have kind of a, a naive idea of what we think we mean when we say atoms or molecules bouncing together at random. The most basic notion that we could imagine is that you have a bunch of different things that could stick together in, in, in different ways and that all the different ways of sticking them together are equally likely. But really, you know, pretty uh, well-established ideas in physics are already going to tell us that that's not going to be the case. You know, and, and sometimes you can get things sticking together in, in special shapes that are, you know, you wouldn't call them alive, but they're already orderly in certain ways that, you know, seem to be if we want to call it, you know, low in entropy. So, for example, forming a crystal under certain conditions is very favorable. A bunch of atoms can form together into a crystal, and the crystal is low in entropy, but it's possible for that to happen from the standpoint of the second law because when that happens, it releases a lot of heat, and that heat gets shared around in the surroundings, and there are lots of different ways of sharing the heat around, and so the total entropy has increased even though the number of ways of arranging the atoms in the crystal is very small. The kinds of lifelike behaviors that really impress us are even more intricate and elaborate than that. They're making copies of themselves or they're doing things that look to us like they're predicting their world or solving problems. And those behaviors, you don't just get by clumping together in an orderly state and releasing heat and then you're done, which is how a crystal forms. But instead what you have to do is you have to have energy flowing in from one source and flowing out in another way, like as heat. So for example, you could have you know light that's being absorbed by a plant and the plant is using the energy from that light to rearrange itself in all sorts of ways and fix itself and repair itself and maintain itself in a certain state. So it's a much more elaborate kind of organization than just forming a crystal. But in both cases, the interesting thing is how the flow of energy is restructuring the system and how the structure of the system has special fine-tuning to the way that energy is getting in. So if I understand what you just said there, uh, you're suggesting that, at least in principle, if I shine a strong light on a bunch of random molecules, uh, they might eventually reorganize themselves to very effectively dissipate the energy of that light and, and maybe come up with photosynthesis. Yeah, so I think what you have to do is you have to break things into pieces. So photosynthesis, you know, we see in plants, that's a very elaborate thing because it's part of an organism that does make copies of itself and it has a whole evolutionary history. And so there's a lot of Darwinian things you can say about plants. But if you're, you know, trying to wind things all the way back, the way I like to talk about it is more... What is our idea of the toolbox that exists in the world of matter before life? Because our naive idea is just before you have self-replicating, like self-copying, reproducing living things that can be subject to Darwinian selection, nothing is going to look very useful. Nothing is going to look very refined or finely tuned because without selection, how are you going to get that? It's just going to be a random pile of garbage. But I think that idea is what's naive. 
What's more careful, if you think about the physics of systems that are exposed to energy sources like you just described, is that the probabilities that are being in different shapes are not completely uniform, meaning it's not the case that all different arrangements of the matter are equally likely. What ends up happening is different shapes absorb energy differently from their surroundings, and then the energy that they absorb has an impact on how they change their structure. So if you keep exploring the space of possible shapes in a way that's biased by the way that you absorb energy, you can end up in some very special looking shapes. And where you end up being stable might turn out to therefore have quite special properties with respect to how it absorbs energy from its surroundings. So what that might mean is that it may not be directly in dialogue with some kind of forensic question of how life as we know it got going however many billions of years ago, but what it may pertain to more is the question of what kinds of physical properties we should be looking for in general when trying to detect the emergence of the sort of prebiotic lifelike behaviors that might be the sort of toolbox for the formation of something you'd want to call a life. Uh, Jeremy, not all scientists are convinced by uh, your ideas here. Some are skeptical about your interpretation of these physical effects. How would you uh, suggest that we test your theory? I'm sure there are many people who would like to do that. Yeah, so, you know, science in that sense is always a, a slow road where you start with some ideas and it takes a while to sort of push the volcano up above the, the surface of the water. And I think we're really at a point now where we're getting a lot more clarity and we're, we're doing our first experimental collaborations as a result. And the fun thing about this is because it is about self-organization and matter with lots of pieces that has energy flowing through it, there are a lot of different contexts in which you can explore things. So we've been starting to collaborate with people who are, you know, vibrating beads and gels of tangled proteins or with people who are exposing materials to radiation and trying to change their properties. You know, probably the most developed collaboration we have so far is in Swarm Robotics with Dan Goldman's group at Georgia Tech. And we're very excited about the results coming out of there. I think in all cases, what this is about is how do you get predictive power over the herd behavior of lots of different pieces that have energy flowing through them? And that won't be the creation of life or it won't be the explanation of where life as we know it comes from. But it may start to chip away a bit or, or revise a bit our naive notion of what can happen in such a sort of frothing mess before things like Darwinian selection set in. Jeremy England, thanks so very much for speaking with us. It was a pleasure. Jeremy England is a physicist at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So, Caleb, uh, the relevance of uh, Jeremy England's ideas, are not the specifics of how life began, but uh, the probability that something is going to cook up life. Is that correct here? I think in essence, it's, yeah, it's really talking about the, the sort of underlying um, potential force that enables stuff like us to occur. So you and I are thermodynamic freaks when it comes to classical thermodynamics. Um, we're not, we don't seem on the face of it a good way for a system to dissipate energy. Everything in the universe wants to dissipate energy, wants to reach equilibrium with its environment. And you look at a human being or any living thing and it seems to kind of break that mold. And yet, it's clearly going to have to be driven at some level by this need for dissipation. And so what Jeremy England is looking at is the underlying 
details of that. How can something that appears like a thermodynamic freak still be completely explainable by our understanding of thermodynamics? What have we learned over the course of this episode about where our understanding about the origin of life lies? Uh, in, in some ways, we don't seem like we've progressed all that much. There's still really big questions. <laughs> Well, there are really big questions, but I think we're, we're making some really interesting progress. Uh, the fact that we can now perform experiments that give real insight to the sort of details of chemistry that might happen in places like hydrothermal systems or even in these warm ponds. You know, the, the modern tools of chemistry have become much more quantitative, much more analytic. We can, we can sense tiny amounts of certain molecules. We can understand chemical networks at a level we never could before, partly because of computational technology. So it's really beautiful synergy right now. We're seeing physicists coming into the problem. We're seeing geoscientists integrating it into the understanding of um, early Earth and, of course, the chemists and the biologists. So, yeah, we've probably got a long way to go, but we can explore things in a way we've never been able to before. Well, finally, Caleb, um, can you address the implications of this research into the origins of life on Earth uh, for the search for life elsewhere in the universe? Does it guide where we look? Yeah, though, so this is the other side to this. Even if we never pin down exactly what happened here on Earth, we never pin down precisely our origin story, what we will learn is the, the needs for life to happen in different environments, and that will help us point to places in our solar system or further afield where you know, the odds go up. We may not be able to put a number to those odds, but we should be able to say that the odds go up here compared to here. And that is incredibly important. Caleb Scharf, thank you so much for joining us for this full hour uh, as we explore big questions about the origin of life. Yes, Caleb, thank you so very much. My pleasure. We have benefited from the origin of life because it gave us senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, and operations manager Barbara Vance. A special thanks again to Columbia University astrobiologist Caleb Scharf. I am executive producer Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to an episode of Big Picture Science called Is Life Inevitable? And if you want to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find those episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. You may be listening to our radio show, but did you know we're also a podcast? Subscribe to the BiPiSci podcast and you'll never miss an episode. You'll find links on our website to the platforms that carry us. 